nearly forgot to turn your headphones on there, didn't I? <laughs> well, at least you didn't forget to put my mic up, which yes. is the mistake you've made in the past. As if, as if. <laughs> Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard Dale. And another week of the movie hour. Indeed. So let's just talk about that uh, piece of music we were playing there, which was Long March Home. It's uh, from an EP which is going to be released at the beginning of July um, by a Durham band called Fool's Gold. And the proceeds are going to be in aid of Help for Heroes. And there are four tracks on the EP all around the um, the First World War. And uh, we played a couple of hours ago uh, White Feathers, which was very good. And this one is Long March Home. And you'll hear more of them in the weeks to come here on Lionheart Radio. Very good, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I was saying to you, it reminded me of sort of Richard and Linda Thompson. But I think I'm going to get that EP. It's very good indeed. Yeah. Right. Shall we have a look at some of our local cinemas? I think that's a good place to start. Uh, let's start with uh, the Anik Playhouse, because um, they haven't got anything on until the middle of June, actually, so that's a very quick one to deal with, isn't yes? it? Yes, okay. Uh, uh, except I was uh, there last Saturday to see uh, Best Exotic Marigold Oh, of Hotel. course. You were going to a complete sellout. Um, mm-hmm. The fifth of five productions, all of which had sold out, so it's obviously caught the imagination of the Anik bunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, given I, I felt as if I knew half the audience there, it's obviously people of a certain age and... Yeah, I think I was, that's what I was tiptoeing around <laughs> yes, when I was reviewing yes. it. So, what's the verdict? Uh, we loved it. Absolutely loved it. Good. And uh, I think it was, it was brilliant. Um, interesting, actually, because we watched uh, the night after a DVD of Ladies in Lavender, which uh, yes. uh, I think is you know, one of the uh, definitive uh, Judy Dench, Maggie Smith uh, yeah. uh, films. Absolutely. I thought absolutely yeah, brilliant. It's interesting contrasting the two, really, because uh, you know, some ways uh, I think um, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, better shot film, uh, more pacey, more exciting, yeah. more vibrant. But somehow Ladies in Lavender got the storytelling just that little bit better because yeah. it's sort of there was too much to pack in almost into two hours. Um, and you sort of felt wondering, well, you know, we could have done so much more with it. Yeah, I mean, I, Ladies in Lavender is one of those films which just kind of creeps up on you when you least expect it and really wins your heart. Yeah. I and mean, I remember seeing it for the first time, again on DVD, just on a lonely Sunday evening, and re- kind of going in thinking, oh, well, nothing else to do, and then coming out thinking, yes. you know what, that was really great. Yes. I mean, I'm a sucker for Nash- Natasha McElone, who's yeah. the actress in it, and I really, so I really like her. And, yeah, I agree with you. It is it is one of the definitive Judy yeah. Dench, Maggie Smith performances. Yes. and they work so well together, those yeah. two. Well, I'm really glad the film yes. worked for you. Yeah, it was, it was good. And, uh, everybody seemed to enjoy it. Nobody wanted to leave afterwards, which is always a good sign. Let's just shout, put it on again! Yes, that's right. Right, Berwick Maltings then. Um, lots and lots of the pirates. Um, today, no, tomorrow at 1 o'clock, tomorrow at 3.30, next Sunday at 2.30, and Tuesday the 22nd of May at 6.30. Yeah, we'll come to it because it's still in the top ten. Is it? Right. That's how Have you read your <laughs> script this <laughs> week? <laughs> Monday evening, 8 o'clock, John Carter. Which is... <sighs> Just very, very rubbish and very disappointing. I mean, it's... Andrew Stanton, when he was interviewed, Andrew Stanton is the guy who made um, Wally and Finding Nemo because this is his first live-action effort. He was interviewed saying, you know, he had a budget of $250 million and had made it for himself. Well, if you make it for yourself and you love the original Edgar Rice Burroughs novel so much, why would you go along with the marketing group when they say, if you take out of Mars, it'll sell more tickets because people don't like science fiction? It is essentially a long, languid, incredibly baggy, incredibly boring film which makes you know certain moments of the star wars prequels look like shakespearean sonnets 
That's probably not one to recommend, then, is it? No. no <laughs> Shall doesn't. we uh, try Tuesday evening at 7.30, no. Bel Ami? Yeah, which is the the Robert Pattinson film, which you know, has him as a kind of social reprobate in, I think it's 19th century France, you know, supporting performance by Christina Ricci. Now, it is frothy in, in the way that a lot of kind of costume dramas are frothy, but no, Robert Pattinson has, I think, better acting chops than a lot of people give him credit for. And then Thursday and Friday, The Hunger Games. Which, again, we'll come on to because it's still in the top ten. Right. And then you want to say a little bit about the Tyneside's up yes, to? Yes. Um, the Tyneside Cinema that are continuing their 75th birthday celebrations with uh, the 75 Years of Cinema uh, marathon. They had one last year where, um, you know, they showed things like Peeping Tom, Wings of Desire, that sort of thing. The, the difference this time around is that all the films on the marathon have been selected by members of the Tyneside Cinema. And I myself yeah. voted for them, so you had to vote for one each yeah. of the decades. So it's taking place, it's uh, 25 hours non-stop between 10pm on Saturday the 26th and 11pm on Sunday the 27th of May. It's spread across three streams, so you won't be able to see every film, but I'll quickly rattle through what there is yeah, on okay. Uh Clockwork Orange, which we'll talk about in three weeks' time. Reservoir Dogs, Akira, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, Donnie Darko, Chasing Amy, Mohan Drive, which is amazing, Get Carter and The Wicker Man, both of which are on the podcasts of this program when uh, Paul Young was hosting it, uh, Freaks by Todd Browning, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Audition, The Great Dictator, the original version of The Lady Killers, Strangers on a Train, The Princess Bride, Bicycle Thieves, The Third Man, Jurassic Park, Three Colours Red, Stop Making Sense, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which we yes. know all about, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, The Marriage of Maria Braun, Goodfellas, Annie Hall, Jules Jim, Fargo, Volver, and the lives of others. Get Carter was on the TV last weekend. That's a sinister little jobby, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, right. that, that's a proper midnight film. <laughs> yes, indeed. Shall we have a look at the uh, at the? Oh, before we do the top tw the top ten, let's just say the Bob Maltings box office number is oh one two eight nine three three zero nine nine nine. Well remembered. That's uh, number ten, Mirror Mirror. Which is utter pants. I mean, it's visually flashy. You know, Tarzan Singh comes out of music videos, and so he knows how to light stuff, and he knows how to make kind of Swan Lake-esque costumes. But the narrative is incredibly feeble. It kind of dodges all the substance of the original Snow White fairy tale in favour of poor slapstick and bizarre creative decisions involving Army Hammer. It's, what's the Disney version instead? Number nine, Silent House. Which is a remake of the Uruguayan horror film The Silent House, of which the only noticeable feature was that it was apparently all shot in one take, like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope was. Elizabeth Olsen, I really like. She tries her best. She is clearly talented, but the film around her is rather ordinary, and once you get past the central gimmick, it isn't scary. The Pirates, at number eight. Which is great fun. I mean, as always with Aardman, you won't see everything the first time round. I don't think it's their most... Well, substantial work in that, no, Curse of the Wearer, I think, has a bit more heart to it. But it's constantly hilarious. The cast are brilliant, particularly Imelda Staunton as Queen Victoria. And as you say, she can do no wrong. And the other one at Berwick this week, The Hunger Games. Which, again, is really great. It's a th thrilling, thought-provoking science fiction film which understands both the genre and its fans. Jennifer Lawrence is absolutely terrific. I'm just a little concerned that the sequel, Catching Fire, is going to be directed by the guy who made I Am Legend. Which leads me with a bit of misgivings, but The Hunger Games is fantastic, so go and see it. At number six, Samming... Salmon fishing in the Yemen. Yes, which is pretty decent stuff from Lassa Halstrom. I mean, it is on one level ridiculous and smart and schmaltzy. You could drive a bus through the plot holes and no, join them up together on the envelope. Uh, but I really like you and McGregor and Emily Blunt. So if you just want to enjoy yourself, that's fine. Number five, safe. 
which is a perfectly serviceable B-movie. You know, it's a Jason Statham film, and it owes quite a bit to Leon, otherwise known as The Professional. The character who can remember lots of very complicated numbers is a nod to The 39 Steps. I mean, I don't think it's up there with the Transporter series, either in terms of the action spectacle or the wit that Jason Statham has to work with, but it does what it says on the tin, and he's always good to watch because he knows his audience. Beautiful film now, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Is it worth it doing it in 3D? No, is the answer. I mean, it is the latest of the 3D re-releases, and Beauty and the Beast in 2D is really, really great. It is. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Jean Cocteau film, The Belle de Bette, which is incredibly strange. But out of all the Disney re Renaissance, Renaissance, sorry, sounding American, films, I think it's on a par with The Lion King, and actually Paul Young of this parish cited it as his favourite Disney film, and so yeah. the ballroom scene in particular, which yes. is you know, interesting. We were talking about Pixar before, because that's the first time that Pixar got involved with Disney to do all the yeah. sort of rendering of that. So in 2D, it's fantastic. The 3D adds absolutely nothing. It is only in cinemas to make money for Disney to compensate for the disappointing 3D returns on its current 3D films, like John Carter of Mars. Yeah. Zac Efron is at number three with the lucky one. Yeah, typical Nicholas Sparks. You know, the message of it is if you can find a man who can sand a boat and loves dogs, then you better marry him. Um, it's nice to see Zac Efron trying to break into more adult roles, and he does look pretty good with his shirt off, but otherwise there's not much to it. Yeah, not getting very good reviews, is it? No, I mean, none of the Nicholas Sparks... I mean, The Notebook got pretty good reviews, but since then, the Nicholas Sparks adaptations that have... They've been accused of falling into the same pattern, which by and large they do if the books are to be released. And number two, probably not surprisingly, grossing a lot of money, American Reunion. No pun intended, because grossing a lot of money. Yes. Um, the big problem with American Reunion is that it wants to have its cake and eat it. On the one hand, it wants to pretend that essentially the noughties didn't happen and we can have all the characters acting like sex-mad adolescents again. <laughs> but on the other hand, it wants them to be middle-aged and nostalgic and looking back on the teenagehood that they've lost. And, you know, it's... You, it's just not as funny as the first film because the first film genuinely wanted to stand on its own and wanted to do something interesting yeah. with all the cliches of those 70s and 80s films we talked about. I mean, we have no real reason to expect any better because clearly they've done it for the money. But yeah, it's not as funny as it should be. And at the top again this week, Marvel's The Avengers. Now, I went to see this on Monday, oh, yeah. and I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I do stand by my original comment about it being the best that we could have hoped for. There's been a lot of nonsense written on the internet about whether or not it's better than The Dark Knight, to which I just say... Batman Begins is better than both of them. Um, yeah. It is very long, although it didn't feel kind of languorous. Yeah. I do think Tom Hiddleston is trying too hard. I mean, you just put him in that wig and he looks like, no, he's, no, it, he looks, looks a bit of a fish out of water. And the plot is confusing and ridiculous, like all the Marvel adaptations are. But it is very funny in places. All the stuff with Robert Downey Jr. is brilliant. And I think, you know, it's well directed by Josh Whedon for actually managing to, to crowbar all those yeah. characters together and make it narratively integral. So, some recommendations for this week. Well, I will recommend The Avengers, although I was yeah. rather lukewarm in it when we reviewed it. Um, Hunger Games and the Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, if you haven't seen it already. And if you want something, you know, just to kind of nuts and bolts, slightly trashy B-movie just for the sake of fun, go and see Save. Because it does what it says on the tin. Okay, our cult film this week is Phantom of the Paradise. After this, Lionheart Radio. 
So to our cult classic this week, and I must admit, I've never heard of this one before, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, okay. Uh, 1974 horror comedy rock musical, and you don't get many of them. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Based, as the title suggests, on the Phantom of the Opera. Directed by Brian De Palma, whom we talked about last October when we did Carrie at the back end of Horror yes. Month. Also known for Scarface, Dressed to Kill, The Untouchables. Most recently, he did uh, a film called Redacted about the Iraq War, which was very little seen. And this was the project he took on just as he was getting the rights to do Carrie. It was around yeah. the time that the novel was coming out. Filmed on a budget of $1.3 million, which about the same as Carrie when you take inflation into account, because yeah. that was about $1.8, million something. By and large, was a flop. It was a big hit in Winnipeg, but about pretty much nowhere else. <laughs> and it's very curious, because pretty much all these studios' marketing campaign was focused on Winnipeg and Canada. And to this day, nobody knows why. Um, <laughs> the it. film, so everywhere else, the film did no business at all. But in Winnipeg, the film played non-stop for four months, and then on and off for another year. Incredible. And they also shifted about 20,000 copies of the soundtrack just in Winnipeg. So, clearly it's a Canadian <laughs> thing. Um, it was later put on a double bill with the Rocky Horror Picture Show on yeah. uh, a circuit of American colleges in late 1975, but again, yeah. like Rocky Horror, didn't do any real business the first time around. Um, whereas Rocky Horror went on to have sort of the non-stop screenings yeah. from 1976 onwards, the revived interest in Phantom of the Paradise began in the 90s when um, an executive started doing one-off IMAX screenings of it across North America and, and over the Canadian border. Yeah. Subsequently, it's achieved a cult following akin to Rocky Horror, resulting in the Phantom Palooza event of 2006 when they got all the cast and crew back yeah. together. Um, Daft Punk, the, uh, the sort of electro-rock band, allegedly based the look of their robot rock on the Phantom's right. beaky helmet. Yeah. And Brett Easton Ellis, who is the author of American Psycho, described uh, the Phantom as one of his favourite characters and said it was one of his favourite films. Oh, right. So, yeah, if you want more on Brett Easton Ellis, go back to the podcast and look for American Psycho, and while you're at it, look at my review of Rocky Horror. So, the plot is, it, the story revolves around the Paradise Theatre in a non-specified American city, yeah. but it's probably New York, uh, and the Paradise is owned by the rock impresario Swan, played by Paul Williams, who also wrote the soundtrack, and he's looking to launch the Paradise as a rock theatre, and at the beginning of the film, we see a Grease-style band called the Juicy Fruits performing a song called goodbye eddie goodbye yeah. and it does look like i mean although it precedes greece it is just pretty much like you expect yeah. john travolta to just wander in you know, and, <laughs> and start yeah. dancing around um so when the band take a break a young man called winslow leach played by uh, william finley who was a regular of departments uh, comes on and performs uh, at a piano a cantata based on faust and swan hears it and thinks that's the music i want to open the paradise yeah. um but in the manner of things he doesn't want winslow he just wants his music so he steals yeah. the cantata throws Winslow into prison and rewrites it first as you know, a cheap single for the Juicy Fruits yeah. but then rewriting it for a young female singer called Phoenix who is played by Jessica Harper right. who among my sort of crowd of you know, cult film enthusiasts is called the queen of cult films because right. she was later in Darrow Argento Suspiria and the Rocky Horror sequel Shock Treatment and a little scene film in the 80s called Blue, the, the Blue Iguana which is, yeah. you know, is a very Marmite film um, Winslow eventually escapes from prison breaks into Swan's record label and tries to destroy it, but he gets his face horribly disfigured in a record press, oh, and uh, he you know, goes back to the theatre, takes a huge beak-shaped helmet and cape, which just happened to be in the costume section yes. of the film, becomes the Phantom of the Paradise, so he haunts the Paradise Theatre, sabotaging oh. Swan's stage yeah. shows, and whilst he's doing this, while trying to get revenge on Swan, he ends up falling deeply and madly in love with Phoenix, and says, only she can sing my music, and yeah. anyone else who tries, dies. Yes. So, how does that sound? 
Yes, interesting. Yes, indeed. I mean, the way to understand Phantom of the Paradise, you kind of have to start with the comparison between Rocky Horror, because there are a number of key similarities between the films. Yeah. How old would you have been when you first saw Rocky Horror? Oh, probably as a student, I would think. Yeah. I can't remember now. But the, 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 were they screenings where, they talk, where you went in costume and talked back to the screen? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do things like that at Durham. <laughs> Fair We'd enough. go in our gowns. <laughs> mortarboards. Yes. <laughs> Just throw them at the screen. <laughs> no, you don't do mortarboards in Durham. I said corrected. It was uh, an objection to uh, women graduates in Durham many, many years ago that uh, all of the male graduates threw their mortarboards into the River Weir, allegedly, and never wore mortarboards again. Right. That's interesting. Yes. Thank you for that. And Newcastle being a college of Durham, they had to do the same. Oh, okay. Yes. Useless fact for a Saturday morning. No, no, it's interesting. Out of university challenge now. Um, <laughs> so the key similarities between the two films, I mean, obviously they're made and released around the same time, so you kind of have to, they're not cut from the same cloth, but you kind of have to acknowledge, yeah. you know, in the same way as when Kick-Ass was made recently and then you had the film called Super, which were, which occupied very similar territory and you think, yes, they yes. weren't made simultaneously, but yeah, they are similar. Both are essentially collections of horror, sci-fi, other B-movie references that are thrown together into a massively outlandish yeah. plot with even more outlandish characters characters neither of the films take themselves at all seriously although phantom i suppose has a little bit more to say as we'll come on to and both are seeing their sort of tongue-in-cheek nature rewarded by large cult followings i would say that the relative popularity of rocky horror or the relative recognition that rocky horror has got might be as much to do to the continuing popularity of the stage show as anything yeah, in sure, the film yes i yeah. mean because you know it's it's an event to go and see Rocky Horror and getting to dress up in yes. that kind of costume. Yeah. And yeah, I think the fact it's so outrageously camp is absolutely it's uh, had to, you know, creates that sort of cult following. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, well, so you've got this these this kind of story, and then we come on to De Palma, who. Very much, he, he's one of these directors who, in the same way I suppose as Quentin Tarantino, if you look at his films, and particularly his thrillers, yeah. there are lots of very clear, very unabashed references to other directors. I mean, if you look at something like Dress to Kill or Body Double, which he made after this in the mid-80s, it's kind of cherry-picking references from Alfred Hitchcock films yeah. as if there's no tomorrow. I mean, Body Double is effectively a slightly sleazier, unofficial remake of Rear Window, because that's a film about a guy spying on, you know, a stripper undressing, yeah. and then he thinks he's been kidnapped and no maybe it's a body double who knows and also the famous example of in the untouchables in the train station scene where the pram is bouncing down yeah. the steps that's a reference to battleship potemkin um and occasionally he's put a lot so many of these references in a film that he's been accused of having no real style of his own but i think in an early effort like this when he was trying to figure out what kind yeah. of director he wanted to be you can sort of get away with it in terms of the horror references, I mean, like I say, it's primarily a, a reworking of Phantom of the Opera. It does precede the Lloyd Webber version by about 12 years, so it is of historical interest. Yeah. And most of it, the, uh, the uh, stuff is either taken from the original novel by Gaston Leroux or from the 1925 version with Lon Chaney, which yeah. is still pretty creepy. I mean, it's a yeah. you know, black and white silent film, which is about 70 minutes long, but it still freaks you out. And you know, all the touchstones of the Phantom of the Opera story are plain to see, because you've got the central character is a composer whose work is stolen by a jealous but talentless impresario. Yeah. And you know, in trying to recover what is rightfully his, he becomes disfigured. I mean, in the Lon Chaney version, it's slightly less believable because we're being asked, we were asked to believe that he could essentially 
essentially get a horrible face by falling in a river, <laughs> which, you know, if you fall yeah. from a great height, maybe, but not off a three-foot yeah. bridge. Um, and then the Phantom, as he becomes, is infatuated with the young lady who performs his music and struggles to balance, you know, this desire yeah. for love with a murky desire for redemption. Towards the end of the film, it kind of brings in more the direct Faustian elements, and there are huge references to the portrait of Dorian Gray, the Oscar Wilde novel, which was yeah. then made into a 1945 film with George Sanders, which has got one of the creepiest paintings in cinema. Yes, indeed, um, yes. Yeah, and it's, in it's interesting because the character of Swan inhabits parts of both Mephistopheles and Faust, because there's the thing about him selling his soul to the devil yeah. in exchange for eternal youth, which is portrait of Dorian Gray, but also, there's, he's, he's acting as the devil in all the people that he's contracting into his record business, so he's kind of taking on both roles. There are also little nods in the stage show to things like Frankenstein and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is, the, like I've said on many occasions, the first film which ever had a twist ending, yes. and it's notable for this really strange expressionist twisted scenery, which is very good. There is also very wit in, in line with De Palma's love of Hitchcock. There is a very funny restaging of the shower scene from Psycho, where essentially... <laughs> There's a male singer called Beef, played by Garrett Graham, who has been hired to, to sing the opening section of the cantata, and he gets to, to dress up as a Frankenstein's yeah. monster. And he goes to take a shower before one of the shows, and you see, a la Psycho, uh, this black shape coming up behind the shower curtain, and the knife comes through the shower curtain. But instead of being stabbed, the phantom shoves a toilet plunger over his <laughs> mouth so he can't speak. Yeah. And there's just this kind of cutting between the phantom speaking with his electronic voice about, yes. no, try and sing my music and I will kill you. Yeah. And <laughs> the shot of Garrett Graham, wide-eyed with a massive plunger over his mouth, just going... <laughs> <laughs> so it's just very odd, but that's quite yes. funny when you first see it. I think what distinguishes Phantom of the Paradise from... Rocky Horror, or indeed many other rock musicals, is the purpose to which these horror references are put. I mean, in Rocky Horror, it was essentially a love letter to all those old films like King Kong, like Creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon, like the original Flash Gordon, that sort of thing. And the B-movie dialogue and horror imagery was largely a celebration of those movies and the pleasure that comes from being scared. And particularly once you get to the floor show sequences towards the end of Rocky Horror, it's very much a case of the plot's kind of gone out of the window. You're yeah. only here because you want to enjoy yourself, which is fine. And the film's unique identity doesn't come... It comes from its unique sense of madness and campness yeah. rather than an attempt to actually say, this is why these conventions are relevant today. Yeah. Whereas what Phantom of the Paradise does is it takes all these conventions on board and gives them a very 70s sensibility. And you know, it recognises that there are moral lessons within the story of Phantom of the Opera which apply to the yeah. rock industry in the 1970s. Yeah. And some of the individual creative decisions do make a crazy kind of sense. I mean... With the Dorian Gray stuff, the Phantom breaks into Swan's private chamber in the Paradise and finds this stack of videotapes, and one of them is Swan having Swan's encounter with the devil, in which he yeah. basically said, no, record this onto tape, and if you want to live forever, you have to watch this every day, which, of course, is the Dorian Gray thing. Yeah, of, yeah, and it makes a kind of, kind of sense. You think, okay, well, if, it, if, if we're in the 70s, why would you bother painting a portrait when you can just make a video and watch it? No, yes. Uh, yeah. Or similarly, you know, the, in the original Phantom of the Opera, the Phantom's mind because it's the, the kind of the white thing yeah. that just about covers the face. It's quite modest. Yeah. Whereas when we're dealing with sort of rock musicals, which do have a sort of theatrical and slightly pompous quality, it kind of makes sense that the Phantom's Mask in this case should be one that covers an entire head in a massive yeah. beak <laughs> and has a huge yeah. flowing cape. You know, it makes sense. Um, the film is a fairly scathing depiction of the record industry. Um, the Sw character of Swan is clearly inspired by Phil Spector because he yeah. has those kind of huge glasses and the unkempt hair uh, and this, this passive-aggressive 
quality where you know he's manipulating yeah. me. I mean, I mean, obviously, we know what happened to Phil Spector in the last couple of years, so yes. we won't dwell on that too much. But it does take the concept of you know, selling one's soul to a yeah. whole new level, <laughs> you know, characterising the industry yeah. as, as the literal embodiment of evil, kind of taking other people's creativity yeah. to run the gravy train. And it's interesting that this was uh, being made around the same time as Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, which of yeah. course covered very similar territory, and I wonder if, what it would have been like if they'd collaborated on the soundtrack. <laughs> would have yeah. been a little bit more slow and thoughtful, maybe. Um, it also sheds light to some extent on the excesses of 70s music, both on and off the stage. I mean, much of the early shots of Swan are him walking into a sort of a harem of beautiful women whom yeah. he's hired and, you know, you know, promised all these girls saying, I'll make you a star, I'll make yeah. you famous, but in return, you have to perform sexual favours on me. Uh, and Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper, very much becomes a victim of this because what happens is, in the opening of the paradise beef is on stage performing and doing his glam rock thing and yeah. shouting and screaming the phantom electrocutes him with a with a stage yeah. thunderbolt yeah the safety curtain comes down and jessica harper is sent out to cover and she sings this song called old old souls which yeah. the audience love and swan thinks hmm actually she's the one i want yeah um so there's a sequence later on where you have this wide shot of a gothic mansion with sort of thunder and lightning, yeah. you know, a bit much like a Vincent Price film. Yeah. And you see the phantom lying on this glass ceiling looking down on Jessica Harper kissing Swan and thinking, mm. you know, she's going to lose herself. It's very, yes. very sad. Um, but also just, you look, you look at the sets of, you know, the kind of elaborate costumes, the, the huge expense in props. It, it, it is a kind of, a kind of unconscious pomposity that would be sent up brilliantly by Spinal Tap a few yeah. years later. Interesting little widget, the sets and the costumes on Phantom of the Paradise were actually dressed and I think designed by Sissy Spacek, who would later star in Carrie. Oh, right, so this, yeah. Because she'd done Badlands and then the yeah. work didn't come in, so she went behind the scenes yeah. with De Palma, who was her friend, and then her husband, uh, Jack Fish, would later show up in a razor head as the man in the planet with the levers. So it all kind of fits yeah. together, all the films that we've done over this slot. The music in Phantom of the Paradise is both a very big strength and a very telling weakness. I mean, it's, like I say, the score is written by Paul Williams, who was a kind of you know, singer-songwriter in his own right yeah. and had a, had a pretty good career. And it's very good in recreating or capturing a particular time or period in genre. So, you know, the opening number by the Juicy Fruits is very convincing as that sort of 50 greaseball yeah. pot with a sort of the slightly too, sorry, hit the microphone, with a slightly too greasy hair yeah. and the turn-ups and the cigarettes behind the ears and that sort of thing. You've got a song later on called Upholstery, which is, you know, got that same slightly <laughs> yeah. tinny, slightly irritating feel that Cliff Richard and the Shadows or the Beach Boys have, where it's, you no, know, it's multiple high male yeah. harmonies you know yeah. for someone like me who doesn't like the beach boys it, it comes <laughs> it oh i know close. what we're finishing the show with then <laughs> <laughs> that's fine <laughs> i kind of walked into that but the point is with the possible exception of old souls which is sung brilliantly by jessica harper the songs are not as memorable as those in rocky horror or even actually as memorable as the ones in shock treatment the rocky horror sequel which is a bit yeah. of a mess but it has a couple of good songs in it and i think the thing is that the song whereas in rocky horror the songs are there to drive the characters forward. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you have that moment where where Meatloaf's character, you know, Eddie, arrives and you have Hot Patootie, in which it's essentially four or five minutes of him introducing his yeah. love for rock and roll and then Tim Curry bludgeons him to death with an axe. Um, but, so that's driving the plot, whereas in this, the songs are more like well-written wallpaper. So they're good, yeah. but they're there for context rather than actually narrative drilling. 
The real strength of Phantom of the Paradise actually lies in its technical aspects. I mean, we talked about De Palma's penchant for camera trickery in Carrie, because in the pig blood sequence, there's the fact that it's shot in split screen. Yeah. And one of the complaints I had about Carrie was that you weren't really sure what to focus on, yeah. because he was trying to say, no, look at this and look at this and look at this and look at this. Um, in this case, however, when he uses split screen, it does pay off. There's a sequence early on in the film where the Phantom, they're rehearsing, uh, the Beach Boys-esque number at the start of the show. And you see on the right-hand side of the screen the cast performing from front-of-stage yeah. POV. On the left-hand side of the screen you see the Phantom backstage putting a bomb into a prop car, which then you see the yeah. car get sort of wheeled out and you know where the bomb is, you know the bomb is, and <laughs> yeah. then it goes off. And it goes back to what Hitchcock was saying, that the key to creating tension is giving the audience information that the characters don't have. For instance, putting a bomb under a table and then yeah. not showing it. Yes. And no, the split screen works in this case because we know exactly what we're looking yeah. for, whereas in Carrie, we kind of don't. Um, there's also some interesting uses of, you know, uh, crane shots. There's a sequence which predates Steadicam where you see the Phantom's POV as he goes up a spiral staircase, which is, you know, very hard yeah. to do technically. And there's also a, a sequence later on of him running down the corridor with his cape flowing, which kind of reminded me of that sequence in Alien where Ripley is running, stumbling blindly down the corridor, yeah. having just met the alien around the corner <laughs> yes. and you know, gone back to get Jones. Much like Rocky Horror, there are any number of moments in the film which are pure and simple weird. Not quite on the level of the magic Christian weird. Yeah. That would yeah. be strange. But, I mean, Beef's entrance is one of the oldest in cinema, where basically Swan is standing on the tarmac at a nondescript airport talking about the future of music, yeah. a bit like that sequence is when the Beatles landed. Yeah. And uh, he's got, he says, no, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Beef, the future of my record label. And four of his heavies wheel out a coffin, stand it up <laughs> on the tarmac, yeah. it opens, and there's Beef in a kind of curly grey wig and makeup, just going... <laughs> which is just odd. Yeah. I mean, his no, his character is fantastic, and all the the finale in which you have all the horror references coming together in a kind of a car crash of makeup, madness, fake yeah. blood, and scantily clad backing dancers. I mean, it does fall <laughs> apart, yeah. but it's a kind of nice, appropriately odd way to finish. In terms of the performances, um, Swan played by Paul Williams, he's really good. There are all kinds of rumours that he was offered the, the part as a quid yeah. pro quo for doing the score for free, but it's actually not true because he was a close friend of De Palma's and he does do that kind of slightly creepy Phil yeah. Spector, Eternal's Phil Spector very well. Uh, William Finley, who sadly died this year, is very good as Winslow. There is another urban myth that when they were doing the, the record press scene, he was almost killed because one of yeah. the chock, it was a real yeah. record press and they tried to put chocks in. But apparently, again, that's not true. Thank you to um, swanarchives.com, which is the official fan site for clearing those up when I was putting this together. And Jessica Harper, I mean... I'm a big fan of hers. From, yeah. I think she's the best thing about shock treatment. Suspiria just wouldn't work without her central performance as much as I love Dario Argento. She sings very well. She's incredibly glamorous and gorgeous and a great actress. So to sum up, it's an interesting, if heavily flawed, oddity, which still, which <laughs> finds Brian De Palma yeah. still rummaging around for the kind of film he was truly brilliant at making. I mean, it's not as good as Carrie. While Rocky Horror is funnier and has much better songs, I think it scores over Rocky Horror as a piece of storytelling, if only because the Phantom of the Opera reference is so clear, you kind of always know where it's going. In the end, however, both films are equally bonkers and <laughs> as, as they realise yeah. the first time round they make a great double bill. Great. Uh, well, we'll have a look at the new releases after this.
This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Bruno Mars and the Lazy Song. I suddenly thought I'd lost my script there. Anyway, we're not here for the next two weeks. No, we're not. We're having a little break. Yeah, because you're going away next week and then the yes. week after it's the Lionheart Radio auction. Yes. So, uh, we'll That's be back. That's where you need to be that day. Indeed. Uh, so we'll be back, I think if my date serves me correctly, on the 2nd of June. That's right. And which is a Saturday. It is. And we will be doing A Clockwork Orange. That should be fun. Yes, it will. Forward to. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, Dark Shadows is our first new release. Okay, um, it's a new film by Tim Burton, which is normally a good sign, um, based on the cult gothic horror American daytime soap opera, which is a mouthful in itself. Um, that ran from the mid-60s to the early 70s and holds, I think, some kind of record for the most episodes of any soap opera ever, certainly in terms of daytime soap operas. So the story starts in 1772, where you have a young man called Barnabas Collins, played by Johnny Depp. Yeah. who is cursed by a jealous witch played by Eva Green who's in things like Casino Royale and um, Perfect Sense most recently she's a very good actress and he, she basically is you know, jealous because she's in love with him and she turns him into a vampire buries him alive and you know, takes over his home he wakes up in 1972 to find that the world has completely changed his ancestors are living in his home which is falling into disrepair and their fishing business is being undermined by the witch who in a manner yeah. of her kind hasn't aged a day and he resolves to put it right and save the home and the family business I mean, the trailer looks really, really great because it's kind of like 70 kit scutches, very good jokes, yeah. stellar cast. I mean, it's the first time that Tim Burton has worked with Michelle Pfeiffer since Batman Returns, and you can tell she you know, yeah. loves working with him. And Eva Green is thoroughly enjoying herself as this kind of vampish, you know, the classical yeah. Angelique Bouchard. And we kind of think of Eva Green as playing these kind of mysterious, introverted odd little characters yeah. but this time it's the full-on vamp and so really kind of really kind <laughs> yeah. of enjoying herself the film in itself is an odd little mess but not necessarily in a bad way i mean it, there are real kind of changes and lurches in the tone of one minute it'll be scary then it'll be funny then it'll be dark and strange and the next minute it'll just be odd and then the next minute it'll be a bit dull um the characterization of barnabas collins i mean johnny depp is a brilliant physical actor and he's got that sort of you know the <clears throat> the pasty skin and the long fingernails yeah. and that sort of thing so he looks the part but there are certain parts of the creative decision that don't gel like there's a moment now he'll be sort of joking around with the family one minute and then it cuts to him sort of feeding on the flesh of people because yes. after all he's a vampire and no, that's a bit jarring and I mean, it isn't the studio monolith that Alice in Wonderland was in the sense that it, it doesn't feel like it's come off a production line. There are big references to uh, Beetlejuice and Sleepy Hollow, Tim Burton's earlier films in there. I would see it as a Burton fan, but knowing full well that it's not his best work, and don't listen to all the backlash about him being a hack, because he isn't. The <laughs> next one is Piranha 3DD. This looks like a sort of miniature version of Jaws, really. Well, yeah, if only. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the new film by John Gulaga, or Gulaga, who did the Feast series on HBO. It's the sequel to Piranha 3D from about two years ago. Story, as you know, is always the same. People go swimming, there's piranhas in the water, and bad stuff happens. Here's the thing. When the original Piranha came out in the late 70s, I think Joe Dante was behind it, but it was, it was essentially cashing in on the success of Jaws, but, but it was okay. Then you had Piranha 2 The Spawning, which is James Cameron's first film, which had piranhas that could fly, yeah. and you know, Cameron famously described it as the best flying piranha film ever made, <laughs> although he's actually quite ashamed of that film. If you ask him in interviews, what, what's your yeah. first film? He said, oh, Terminator. Just doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, then you get the 3D remake, which was directed by Alexandra, Alejandra Ayer, which... <laughs> had a couple of interesting scenes but nothing really else and when it gets to the stage that you're having to rip off jaws 3d <laughs> 
you know that you're scraping the bottom of the <laughs> barrel. I mean, it's no terrible yeah. script, horrible acting, nasty, leery shots of people's chests, lots of shots of bodily dismemberment, which is gross rather than scary. I mean, you remember the bit in Jaws where the head floats out? Yeah. And that's genuinely scary because you don't see how it's been done. Yeah. The one good thing in it is the gag where David Hasselhoff is posing as a lifeguard and someone says, can you jump in and help them? And he says, number one, I'm not a lifeguard. I never have been. And secondly, <laughs> it's natural selection. But that joke is in the trailer, so you don't need to see the film. Okay, next one, Jeff, who lives at home. Okay, um, new film by Jay and Mark Duplass, who last directed Cyrus, which was that strange sort of indie film with um, with Jonah Hill, which didn't get very widely yeah. seen. Um, the story follows Jeff, played by uh, Jason Siegel, who is a live-at-home slouch with absolutely no ambitions, but he has this belief in kind of cosmic yeah. destiny and everything is connected. Uh, and he runs into his brother Pat, played by Ed Helm, who is convinced that his wife is having an affair because he, he bought a Porsche to surprise her and she didn't want to and now, now he thinks that she's cheating on him and they're both causing grief to their mother played by susan sarandon rocky horror connection yes uh, and then the family sort of you know, drifts apart and comes back together and so forth i was not really a big fan of cyrus and this is essentially a bit more sort of the slightly dull indie mumblecore i mean it's trying to send up the whole everything is connected yeah. stuff from things like m night shaman's signs which was actually his last really good film although bits of the village are interesting um but the acting is not good enough or the characters compelling enough for us to kind of get the joke and it ends up being just a little bit irritating so if you're a mumblecore fan if you, you know save up your hard earned to shell out and watch greta gerwig films then you'll like it but otherwise you'll be bored and it's a very short film isn't it it is yeah i mean i, I certainly wouldn't have wanted it to be any longer it's <laughs> right, okay mel gibson Get the gringo. Yeah, which is being released in some territories is how I spent my summer vacation. Uh, for I think reason. I prefer Get the Gringo. Yes. Uh, I can sort of, yes, I understand why. Then. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's the debut film by writer-director Adrian, Adrian Grunberg, with writing and production credits for Gibson. Uh, so the story is that he's an American getaway driver who escapes across the border to Mexico with $4 million, uh, but he's caught and sent to a sprawling Mexican jail, which is one of those jails where your family are allowed to come in and live with you if you're serving a long sentence yeah. and uh, he teams up with a nine-year-old boy who is in there with his mother he uses the boy as a kind of as like the red character in Shawshank Redemption to get him things and keep an yeah. eye out while he falls in, while he goes about falling in love with his mother ages and ages ago when we started doing this show together we talked about the Mad Max films yes and like so many of his contemporaries I mean I suppose the closest comparison would be Liam Neeson. It's like Gibson has downsized in old age and kind of gone back to the nuts and bolts exploitation movies that he started out with. I mean, yeah. admittedly, he's courted controversy a lot more than Liam Neeson has, and many people would say, well, he had this coming to him. Yeah. But it just, it's, it just it strikes me as a very odd decision, because I mean, he clearly doesn't need the money. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a perfectly wealthy guy, and you know, Passion of the Christ continues to sell big on DVD. Yeah. Um, but he just kind of spends the time sort of, it's, it is all over the place. I mean, the trailer structures it as a comedy because the, the trailer is him, like, writing to his mother and, no, yeah. and doing that sort of thing. But it's like Mad Max without any of the brains, and he kind of wanders around looking for all the world like an unhappy jellyfish. Yeah. And just, it, you just think, okay, Mel, I understand that, you know, the offers weren't exactly flooding in after the whole anti-Semitic anti thing, but why did you have to go and do this? I mean, it's not awful, it's just a bit of an odd path to take. Right, it's because sort of mixed reviews, but seem to be generally pretty favourable. Well, yeah, I mean, it, as a nuts and bolts exploitation film, it's okay. I mean, there are all kinds of racial stereotypes in there, yeah. basically depicting all Mexicans as lazy or drug dealing. Yeah. Um, 
Again, it, as an exploitation film, it does what it sets out to do, which might explain the positive reviews. Yeah. And Mel Gibson's charismatic, but I just think, why is he in this particular film when he should be doing something bigger? Okay, an art house film to finish with, but with Vanessa Paradis in it, and that is Café de Flore. Which is the film of the week. It's the new film by writer-director Jean-Marc Jean Vallée, whose last film was The Young Victoria with Emily yeah. Blunt, which, I really, oh, yes. which yeah. I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, so there are two parallel stories taking place here. One of them is set in uh, the present day and follows a character called uh, Antoine played by uh, Kevin Perron who is a club DJ living in Montreal he's got a beautiful girlfriend called Rose and two daughters the twist is that he's still carrying a candle for his ex-wife called uh, Carole uh, played by Helen Florent who is the mother of his two daughters and there's a bit of romantic tension between the two the other story is set in 1969 uh, and follows a young mother called Jacqueline, who's played by Vanessa Paradis, who is, of yeah. course, Johnny Depp's other half. And her young son has Down syndrome, and all the doctors say, look, he's probably not going to reach 25, so yeah. spend as much time with him as you can. And she is completely devoted to him, even at the expense of her own health, and indeed herself. It's a very touching film about parental devotion and responsibility for one's children and how that yeah. can you know, become overbearing and affect your life. The structure of it reminded me a little bit of Sarah's Key from uh, last year, where you have the, the kind of the historical story and the modern story yeah. kind of flipping back yeah. between the two and you realise that actually the characters have some kind of, if not a direct narrative link, yeah. then some kind of thematic crossover. Genuinely well-rounded characters, I mean... You can sort of see the connection in the young Victoria because it's about women being resourceful. Yes. Uh, and there are, it does, in the same way as the Three Colours trilogy, there's that kind of understated colour palette, but there's a real slow-burning emotional resonance that comes through. I think it's really, really good. Good. So that's I would your rec recommendation. That's, that's my recommendation. I would add Dark Shadows as a reserve, but go in, don't, expe don't expect Edward or Sweeney Todd if you go in. Expect kind of sub Beetlejuice if you go in and see that okay that's it for this week's uh, movie hour yep um let's just say uh, before we go 180th uh, birthday wishes to the journal and uh, i didn't realize it was launched uh, with the stated aim of overthrowing earl gray's government <laughs> did they get cost, very far <laughs> cost 35 pounds in today's money and within two months the editor was beaten up Fascinating history. Yes. Maybe they could uh, refocus that campaign to get Earl Grey tea banned. <laughs> but, but then again, I would fight against that because I love Earl Grey tea. Controversial. And of course, the Earl Grey estate never made any money from that tea because they had no business yes. sense. So, a couple of tracks to go out with. First of all, especially for Daniel. <laughs> Lovely Eliza Doolittle there and Pack Up. And of course, before that, Barbaran from the Beach Boys. You just he liked that. You really liked that one, didn't you? <laughs> anyway, good luck to Cyrus Pattinson in the ABA boxing finals tomorrow. And it will be behind you, mate. You're back on Thursday. One till three, yeah, as always. Great. We're back together Saturday, the 2nd of June. Indeed. Set it in your diary. Kevin has the news. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.